0: Good evening, everybody, and uh, you may want to open your Bibles on page 983, uh, which is Matthew 16, the reading we had. But due to the uh, topical nature of tonight's sermon, there will be uh, many references I'll be throwing at you. So you might want to have a piece of pen and paper, maybe to write some of those references down and then you can check them later, make sure I'm telling the truth. Let's uh, pray before I begin, shall we? Dear Lord, as we uh, come to to listen to your word tonight, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. May what you have to say to us as a church this evening come through loud and clear, and may our hearts respond to Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. There was a small boy who uh, loved nothing more than to go and make lots of sandcastles on the beach. So every year, his parents used to uh, take him along to the beach, and he'd make all these beautiful, marvellous uh, sandcastles in the sand. One year, he was uh, plagued by uh, bullies. This wasn't me, so you don't have to say ah oh, or anything like that. He was plagued by bullies who came along and stamped on his sandcastles and kicked the walls down. So the next day, he buried rocks underneath those walls. The bullies only returned one more time. See, that boy knew what he was doing. Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18 says this, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I think that Christ knows what he was doing too. But who was this rock? Well, you know very well that the Roman Catholic tradition claims that Peter then became the first pope, and through a long line of papal succession, Christ has been building his church around the Pope. In reaction to that doctrine, the Protestants have come up with the argument that the rock actually doesn't refer to Peter at all. It refers to the confession that uh, he made, uh, that is just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the Church, in other words, is founded on doctrinal truth. But neither argument can really be supported by the text that we have in front of us, I think. You see, it is Peter who is given this new nickname. In Greek, he is called by Jesus Petros, the masculine form of Petra, meaning rock. And this wordplay around the nickname, you are Petros, and the statement on this rock or Petra, I will build my church, it clearly suggests that Jesus is talking about Peter. He's talking about the man, Peter, that Jesus has in front of him. But as we saw uh, last week, if you were here in the morning, when I preached on Mark's version of this very same passage, it's probably, and, and Mark's version was probably based on Peter's own account of what happened, because most scholars believe that Peter was actually the major source for Mark's gospel. But Mark doesn't see fit to mention any of the blessing that comes to Peter, uh, which Matthew records. So why is that, I wonder? Is it just humility on Peter's part he he didn't see fit to tell Mark about this bit well it could be you see Peter would have known that later in Matthew 18 uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18 Jesus extends his promises to the other disciples as well so this promise about the church didn't just go to Peter it went to the other disciples as well and in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 4 to 8 Peter himself realizes that although the church is made of many people the stone that holds it all together is actually Christ. He says Christ is a living stone, the cornerstone, the capstone upon whom the church is built. And that view is confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. So why did Jesus say this to Peter here in Matthew 16? Well, I think there must have been some kind of irony in the use of this nickname, the rock. After all, even as Peter spoke, he knew that Peter's understanding of Jesus being the Christ was only partially correct. That's why he tells the disciple not to tell anybody what's just been said in verse 20. Jesus also knew that this rock, at the first sign of trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane, would try and fight his way out of the problem with a sword. And then later that evening, he would deny knowing Jesus three times. Some rock. Now I think the point here is that Jesus builds his church out of people, frail, human people like Peter. Peter, who was strong-willed, enthusiastic, tigger-like, who always, he was always doing good things, but he was also, also getting things wrong. Christ will build the church using people like Peter, people like you, and people like me. And it's on that rock that Christ will build his church. To us, the word church sounds very solid, a building tall and strong like this one. But to the first century hearers, there would have be been no solidity in the word ecclesia, which is the word that Jesus would have used in Greek. It simply means a gathering, a gathering of people like, just like Peter, like the disciples, like you and me. So is it any wonder then that when we look around at us at the church that we see in front of us, around the world and here in Norwich... Is it any wonder that it looks nothing more than a flimsy sandcastle? Anything but something built on a firm foundation? Because it's this rather rocky gathering of people under the rocky leadership of Peter, which Jesus calls the church. And therefore, it's a great comfort to hear what Christ then goes on to say about the church, because he gives Peter three great promises that we should take to heart. He says, firstly, I will build my church... The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then he goes on to give a promise of divine guidance. Let's look at those in some more detail. So firstly, Christ says to Peter, I will build my church. Now, I'm never quite sure what to say to people when they ask what I'm going to do when I leave here. The temptation is always to say, well, I'll go and lead my own church somewhere. And of course, that's complete nonsense, isn't it? even if the small churches of the benefits of Shuffle Bottom by Sea, uh, which is where I'll end up, uh, will grow to you know, 500 people or more under my leadership, it's not going to be me who has built the church, and it will not be my church. Conversely, thankfully, if the church shrinks under my leadership, I can at least take the comfort that it is Christ who is building his church, even if it doesn't look like it. Only Christ knows what the church truly looks like and how large it is, because only Christ knows the true heart of true believers. See, to us, the church can seem like a big, sprawling city. That sort of gets higher, but sometimes it gets lower as walls fall down again. It spreads out in different directions. You're never quite sure where it's going to go, west and east, north and south. And depending on where you're standing at a particular moment in time, it can look either exciting, like China. The church in China today might look quite exciting, or might look depressing a bit like the church in China 20 years ago, just 20 years ago. Or maybe how the church looks today in Western Europe. But it is still the church, no matter what our perspective is from where we're standing. You see, the only thing we can be sure of is that Christ is and will build the church. Second, Jesus says, the gates of Hades Hades will not overcome it. In some of our Bibles, this is wrongly translated, really as the gates of hell, suggesting this big battle between the forces of the devil and evil and the triumphant good of the church. Now, in other places in the New Testament, we are warned about that spiritual battle, and we are in that spiritual battle, but that's not what, I don't think that's what it's saying here. See, here, the word Hades is the Greek version of Sheol, the Old Testament word for that shadowy underworld where the the people went when they died. So when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overcome it, I think what he's saying is he's renewing his promise to all us true believers that they will never die. You see, the universal church of believers may never meet all together in one place here on earth. But in Revelation 7, we catch a glimpse of that church as it meets before the throne of God's glory. You see, we shall never pass through the gates to that shadowy world of death known as Sheol or Hades. Instead, we face a glorious future of life in heaven. Third, Jesus promises Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I was looking for a Peter standing at the pearly gates joke, but I couldn't find one decent enough to repeat in the evening service. And unfortunately for comedians around the world... Whatever this verse means, it probably doesn't mean that Peter was standing at the gates of heaven with a large bunch of keys. You see, only Christ has the authority to admit or not to admit people into the kingdom of heaven. But what Christ, Christ does do, I think, here, is gives to the church the keys to all the resources of the kingdom of heaven. But he gives it to us now, here on earth, as the church. It's an image used in Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. there's a good steward called Elikim, son of Hilkiah. And he received, it says, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. See, in this case, the church has been given all the resources of heaven. But like the household stewards, we have to unlock those resources by prayer, by putting putting into practice the gifts that we've been given. And yes, yes, even by self-sacrificial giving To the church, financial giving. When Jesus says to Peter in verse 19 and to all the disciples later in chapter 18, he says, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, it's not just a promise that heaven will endorse in some way the decisions that are made here on earth. The grammatical structure of this sentence reverses the order of action to that which we all normally understand when we read the English translation. See, instead of an endorsement of earthly decisions, it's more of a promise of a unique spiritual direction, a unique spiritual guidance and provision for the church. It really means whatever you bind on earth will be found to have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be found to have been loosed in heaven. The decision is made, but it's already been made in heaven. You see, Christ will build his church. Christ will ensure that the members of his true church never taste death. And Christ will direct and guide the church in a unique way, unique way we don't fully understand. So how should we respond to this little passage, to, God's, to Christ's promises here to the church? Well, let me suggest three responses that I think we should make. So we should love what God loves most. We should love God's activity in the world, and we should love God's presence in the world. The first of those, love what God loves most. As some of you know, uh, around the Richard Dannert breakfast event we had yesterday, um, there was some confusion at start as to whether it was a men's breakfast or whether women were allowed to come. And we quickly quickly cleared that off and said, yes, women are very welcome. But I was reflecting on the way home from the event yesterday, that actually we said that, but we never actually got around to inviting Mrs. Dannett along to the event or anything like that. And, uh, and I was reflecting also, you know, if, even worse, if Mrs. Dannett had turned up to the event, but then we completely ignored her and left her sitting on her own in a table somewhere in a corner, whilst we gave all due respect to the general himself, it would have been completely terrible, wouldn't it? It would have been disrespect not only for Mrs. Dannett, but it would have been a disrespect a general too. You just wouldn't go there, would you, really? But unfortunately, I think perhaps some of us do that to the church. You see, some of us do that with Christ and his bride. We pay lip service to what God loves most. We pay lip service to the church, the gathering of his people, the bride of Christ. You see, continuing our theme of slightly erotic poetry in evening service, I want to refer you to Ezekiel chapter 16. (laughs) And verses one to eight, there it talks about the nation of Israel being pictured as a young girl, growing up. When she was old enough for love, it says in verse eight, God entered into a marriage covenant with her; she became His wife. That's why every time you read in the Old Testament about people who were unfaithful to God, they were they were called adulterers; they were unfaithful to God. In order to bear fruit, the people of Israel had to remain intimate with God. Isaiah 54, verse 5 says, "Reminded them that your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. You see, this marriage relationship is confirmed also in the New Testament. The New Testament sees the Christian church as the bride of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could write in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. You see Christ here, he gave himself up. He died for the church to present who? The church to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And Revelation 21 speaks of the new Jerusalem as being prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So, what does God love most? He loves his church, he loves his gathering, the gathering of his people. That's you and me here tonight. Now, until we get to the new heaven, and the new earth. Our little part of the Bride of Christ is what we see and what we know. And I think as evangelicals, sometimes we are guilty, and we're particularly prone to paying lip service to the Bride of Christ. You see, we're proud that we choose. We don't just go to our local parish church. We choose a church. In a sense, our emphasis on personal salvation leads to an attitude of personal church, I go to this church because it suits me. The problem is that as soon as it doesn't suit us, for whatever reason, we feel able to just move on and go elsewhere. But to truly love the church means that sometimes we need to make ourselves vulnerable. We need to make ourselves vulnerable in love. The classic passage on this is probably C.S. Lewis from Four Loves. He says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. Your turn to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you will be perfectly safe from all dangers and perturbations of love is hell. You see, I believe that Christ wants us to become vulnerable in our love for the people of God, in our love for God's church. Sometimes that may mean in our relationships with others within the church. Perhaps it means taking more risks, challenging poor behaviour, or allowing ourselves to be challenged appropriately as well. It might mean suggesting new ventures, a new way forward. Other times it means being vulnerable with our money. It means trusting the organisation we are part of, with all its faults and walls of sand, that we will use the money, that I give to grow the church and lead people to Christ. So we should love God, love what God loves most in the world, his people, the bride of Christ, the church. Secondly, I suggest we should love God's activity in the world. Another picture that the Bible uses in relation to the church is that of the body of Christ. So for example, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says this, You... Paul talking to the Corinthian church, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Romans 12 says something similar. Ephesians 4 and verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit. Ephesians 5 and verse 30 says, we are members of his body. And what does this body do? Well, together as a body, we are apostles, we teach, we prophesy, we work miracles, we heal we help others, we administrate, a particularly exciting one that, and we speak in different kinds of tongues. That's according to one Corinthians. A similar list appears in Ephesians. In other words, we are part of God's activity in the world to build up the church and to be a blessing to the world around us. Now my question is this, can people easily recognise us as the body of Christ? A couple of weeks ago I went to Cromer and we went for a walk along the uh, pier uh, with the family. And they had one of those boards, you know, that you poke your head through and you, uh, on the other side is painted a sort of muscle man or a clown or a bathing beauty or something like that. Or in Cromer's case it's always a lifeboat man because they're obsessed with lifeboat men in Cromer. So you stick your head through and you have your photograph taken. And the, photo- the photos come out humorous because the head doesn't quite fit the body in some way. Now, if we could picture Christ as the head of our local church, of this church, would the world laugh at the misfit? Or would they stand in awe of a human body which is so closely related to its divine head? What would it mean for us, Holy Trinity, to make this human body so closely related to the head of Christ that people just stand? in awe? Would it mean more prayer? Almost certainly, and I long for more of us to come to our monthly prayer meeting. Quick plug. Would it mean taking more risk about changing what we do to ensure that we are more of an outward looking, missional, organized, a missional community? I think so, yes it would. Would it mean greater generosity in our giving to the work of Christ locally and elsewhere? I think yes. And i speak as someone who also tends to sit on their paperwork and not get around to giving just because they don't want to fill a forms in. God could do all of this stuff on his own, you know. He doesn't really need us. But he chose to use us, his people in his church, to be involved in his activity in the world. Do we love God's activity? Finally, do we love God's presence? in the world Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21 says in him that's Christ the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit in the Old Testament as we know the temple was said to be the dwelling place of God where he lived it was his presence on earth in the New Testament, that temple is not this building. It's us, the Christians, gathered here together as a church. And we should be like that person who turns up a party and, and turns it from just as a mere gathering into a, into a really fun party just by their mere presence, just by mere turning up. Because we should be light up this world purely because God lives among us. But isn't it sad We so often hear the opposite story. The voices of cynics, like one David Thoreau, or something like that, who said, when you knock, ask to see God. Don't ask for one of the servants. When you knock, ask to see God. Don't ask for one of the servants. You can see what he's trying to say, can't you? Or Minon McLaughlin, who wrote back in the 1960s, said, I've been hiding from God, and I'm appalled to find how easy it is. And yet, here God is. We are the holy temple of the Lord and thankfully there are many people and there have been many people over the course of the last year or so who do find God among us and that's deeply encouraging for us all. But we mustn't be complacent. So do we want to be a church where people walk into our evening service and go away thinking, wow, God really does live there. Yes, I really met with God there tonight. You see, the sight of a bunch of Christians really worshipping God can be truly powerful. A simple prayer of someone after the service can be truly powerful. Going out of your way to meet somebody new can be truly powerful. Offering to help someone in a practical way or to care for someone can be truly powerful. Sharing their pain or rejoicing with them can be truly powerful. They can all be signs of God living amongst us in power. And wouldn't it be good if our giving matched our conviction that God dwells among us? That would also be truly powerful. You see, that's why in Acts 2, when the fledgling church in Jerusalem got together, they not only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, but all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. You see, that's the behaviour of people who are safe in the knowledge that they're not only in the presence of a nice bunch of people, but they're also in the presence of the living God. And that living God holds sufficient heavenly resources to provide for all their needs. So do we truly love what God loves most? Do we truly love God's activity in this world? Do we love God's presence In the world? Those are the questions. But let's remind ourselves where we started tonight. Christ will build his church. And here, do it, using the rocky foundation of human beings like you and me. Christ will build his church. See, someone once compared it to another structure that was built for a major event in a large city. This structure was, so, was called monstrous by many citizens of that city. Newspapers, artists, writers, all demanded for it to be torn down as soon as the event was over. Initially, it only had permission to stand for a maximum of 20 years. Yet from the moment that its engineer conceived it, he took pride in it. He loyally defended it. He fought for it. He defended it against all those who wished to have it taken down and be destroyed. You see, he knew that it was destined for greatness. What am I talking about? Well, it wasn't Millennium Dome. It's the Eiffel Tower. The engineer, of course, was Alexander Eiffel. His famous tower was completed in 1889. In the same way, we are struck by Jesus's loyalty to another structure, to the church which he entrusted to an unlikely band of disciples, whom he defended, he prayed for, and he prepared to spread the gospel. To outsiders, they, and we, must seem like incapable blunders, a church that builds in the sand. But Jesus, the architect of the church, knows that this structure is worth building and to go on building. He knows that we are destined for greatness when Jesus comes again. Christ will build his church. And all we need to do is our bit within it and to love the work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with love. You would fill our hearts with generosity. You would help us to hear your call tonight, to love your church and all of those within it. Amen.